The scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It can be found on page 976 in the Black Bibles. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple and the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Jonathan and Mary. Let's, uh, let's pray together now as we look into God's word. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who reconciles all things to yourself in Christ Jesus our Lord. And fathers, we have the opportunity this morning to think about this new creation uh, of yours, the church, this body that you are building unto yourself. We pray, Father, that we would see with our eyes what you see with your eyes, and that you would uh, nourish us now by the power of the Holy Spirit and refresh our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Well, we just finished our uh, sermon series last week on the book of Daniel, and this morning we have the opportunity after our sermon to ordain and install new officers at Christ the King, new elders and deacons, and I think that that's a good opportunity for us to step back for just a second and to consider this thing out there, or this thing right here that is called the church. And where does this thing called the church fit into our lives, you know? For much of my life, uh, the church functioned as one voice among many, which had some level of influence in my life. It was either equal to or inferior to, depending on kind of where I was in my life, uh, the voices of school or family or of sports or of relationships, you know, all those kinds of things. And part of that is because I grew up in the church in the South, which meant that our family went to church enough to be respectable, but not so much where people would think we were fanatical about it. It was a tough, but you had to strike that balance. It was very difficult, but my parents had it pretty much, you know, mastered. Uh, when we didn't go to church, we would not go outside until 12 o'clock, that sort of thing. Because if you were seen mowing your lawn on Sundays in Jackson, Mississippi before noon, bad, you know, you'd get hate mail, things like that. Different world now, obviously. Um, 
but we were, you know, we, we were, our lives were around the church a lot. But for all of that, I, I can honestly say that the church had very, very little impact on the way that I thought about the world. It, it, was, it was really an inferior voice to things that I believed were much more important, things that had much more influence. I read an article this week, and this is absolutely true, that every person, and this was really about our, our, our kids, and this is true, that, that every person is going to be discipled by something right? There's going to be some voice that is going to be calling at you for our obedience. And if it is not Christ, it's something else. So don't be naive to think that you're not being shaped somehow and into something. The question is, what is shaping you? What is that message? You know, what are you being formed into? And is it consistent with Christ and his word uh, and and what he's building in the church? But for me, it, it had very little impact on my life until much later, and that I think is to, well, that I know is to my detriment um, for, for many reasons. But it does lead to a question, doesn't it? How are we to think about the church? What is it? What is its role in our lives? Is it simply one of like a million other things that's on our to-do list, you know, of a very busy life, a, 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 a component of a life that is already crowded with a million other things? Or is the church central? Is it central to our lives? Does it sit at the center or is it floating around somewhere on the periphery? That's the question. And Ephesians chapter 2 is really about that. Even though Paul does not use the word church uh, in this uh, passage, it's all about this question of where the church fits into our life. Because Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2 is reflecting upon the mystery of how the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ brings us from a state of alienation to a state of reconciliation. First, from alienation to God to reconciliation to God, but then by consequence of what God is actually doing in the world from alienation from one another to reconciliation with one another. So he gives us here in this passage one definition of the church. Now there are others. But here's one, that the church is the reconciled community of God's people that represents Christ in the world. The church is the reconciled community of God's people that represents Christ in the world. And so to, 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 to reflect on that this morning, I want to look at three things. First, we have to understand our alienation and then embrace our reconciliation And finally, engage our new community. So understand our alienation, embrace our reconciliation, and uh, embody our new community. So first, we must understand our alienation. At the beginning of the Bible, we read that God created human beings in perfect, unsullied relationship to him and to one another. But in very short order, our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke God's commandment. And when they did that, both of those relationships were ruptured. Human beings' relationship to God, ruptured. And human beings' relationships to one another were ruptured. And that is the state that every human being since that time has been born into. We're born into a state of alienation from God and alienation from 
one another. We're first of all alienated from God. Look with me at verse 12 in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And then down at verse 13, Having no hope without God in the world. You see, Paul begins his path with alienation because he has to. Because it is our estate apart from Christ and because it is fundamental. Because God created us to live in relationship with him. But instead, what, what we by nature do, what our hearts and our lives by nature do, is we pursue meaning and we pursue all kinds of lesser gods that hold us back from ever, st- ever stopping to wonder whether or not we are attaching ourselves to something that is truly ultimate, that can truly bring us life, or is merely transitory. But that's not the only alienation that we face in this world. We're also alienated from one another. Because Paul draws a direct line between this alienation from God and this alienation from human beings by drawing a distinct line between Jews and Gentiles who are living apart from Christ in verses 11 and 12. His argument is that apart from Christ, Jews and Gentiles, which was the, the two main groups that embodied this church in Ephesus, and one of the reasons he was writing, and we're going to find this out, is because by nature they hated each other. We'll get to that in just a second. But his argument is that apart from Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles ultimately define themselves by being one or the other of those things and by not being one or the other of those things. And that definition caused them to hate and to detest the other, ultimately wanting to completely separate themselves from one another, which they actually tried to do in the church, but it's hard to do. Uh, But you can do that. Now, even though we're culturally and historically removed from the first century tensions between Jews and Gentiles, we do know what it feels like and is like to be alienated from other human beings, right? Right now we live in a culture that is particularly divided politically. It's a very politically divided culture in our country. And the problem here is that there is a tendency to define the question of who's in and who's out, not with respect to someone's confession of faith in Christ, but with respect to how they vote. Even in the church. Even in the church this happens. When we begin to conflate our life together with partisan politics, this is an unbiblical insanity, actually. Yet, this is what we do here in the church in America. But even on a more subtle sense, how many close relationships do you really have in this world? How many relationships do you really have in this world where you would say that, that there is, there's intimacy and not alienation? I know that many of you, in this room, exist in marriages, which should be the most intimate relationship you have, but you live as if you were two strangers. Some of you believe that you're simply so busy trying to make your way in this world that you don't have time to pursue close relationships. It's a, it's a luxury that maybe is okay for other people, but you don't have time for it. Some of you are working so hard at cultivating an image of yourself, an image of perfection, that you are unintentionally but definitely giving off a vibe that you're unapproachable because nobody can meet your standard that you have set for yourself and then emanate toward other 
people. See, this kind of relational alienation is real, and it's also tragic. I read an article not that long ago, and and in this article there was an odd and slightly gross story that I'm going to tell to you now. It happened in the 1980s in Germany. Three weeks before Christmas in 1983, a 43-year-old man named Wolfgang Dirks, living in Germany, died in his apartment while he was watching television, which is a very sad thing in and of itself. But the craziest part of this story is that Wolfgang Dirks' death was not discovered until a full five years later. Dirks had it set up with his landlord, even in the 80s apparently you could do this, where his rent check was being automatically deposited from his bank account. And so as long as the money there was money in his bank, bank account, his landlord was fine. But five years after his death, his bank account ran dry. And so his landlord, this is, this is really a sad part of the story too, his landlord came to his apartment to evict him, opened it with a key, and there he found Wolfgang Dirks, or what was left of Wolfgang Dirks, in a chair, the TV had burned out, but the lights on the Christmas tree were still twinkling. Now, that's a horrible story, and I'm not telling it to shock you, because the author who writes that story asks a profound question at the end of it, and it's one worth pondering. If a person can die in such isolation that in a multi-tenant apartment building, none of his neighbors notice, How lonely was he when he was alive? How lonely was he when he was alive? How lonely are you? How lonely are your neighbors? Do you even know? A lot of us probably don't even know what's going on with our neighbors. Alienation in our culture because of sin and because of the the, the walls we build around ourselves and frankly because of our busyness is real, but it's not ultimate, because we are also called to embrace our reconciliation. Tim Keller defines the gospel this way, that while we are apart from Christ, we are far worse than we could ever dare imagine, that in united to Christ by faith, we are far more loved and accepted than we ever dare dream. This is, this is a definition of reconciliation. It's a reconciliation of our relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ that also results in our reconciliation to one another. So what God is doing is more than only reconciling us to himself. He's actually reconciling all things to himself, which means he is drawing his people together in relationship with one another. So in Christ we are reconciled to God. Paul starts a brand new progression of thought in verse 13 with one of his favorite words, but, B-U-T, but now. These two words means that what he is about to say reverse what he has said before it. And what he has said before it is we are alienated from God and one another, but then in verse 13 he says, but now in Christ Jesus. You, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Once you were alienated from God by sin, but now you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And a lot of us really believe that that's the extent of what Jesus does, that he reconciles us to God. But Paul goes on. This is fundamental, it's foundational, it's requisite, but it does not represent the full purposes of Christ's work in the world because we're also reconciled to one another. Look at verse 14 where Paul says that, it, that, that, that God through Jesus breaks down the wall of hostility. He breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Not just between human beings and God, but also human beings and one another. Christ would reconcile us through the cross, he says in verse 16, thereby killing the hostility. Now this is hard, and this is the culture that Paul was writing into. In the first century, pious religious Jews would get down on their knees every single day and thank God that they were not Gentiles, which is simply a non-Jewish person. When a Jewish son or daughter in that time of the world, in that time, would marry a Gentile, would marry a non-Jew, that Jewish family would hold a funeral. They would hold a funeral for that child, thereby signifying that their son or their daughter was now dead. You think that that's just the culture of 2,000 years ago and that doesn't happen right now? I have a friend who I went to seminary with who was in ministry in a town in the deep south who had to leave that ministry and move to another place because they adopted an African-American child and were getting racist threats because of having done that. I have another friend that I went to seminary with who got a job offer in a small town in Texas, uh, by the way, who was set to take that job, but that job offer was rescinded after they found out that he was married to an African-American woman. This happened not that long ago. But Paul says, the gospel says no more of that. No more of that. No. That divide divides you and defines you no longer. You are defined by Christ and you are reconciled to one another and this leads to an important question what are the boundary markers in your life that supersede the common confession of faith in Jesus Christ as demarcation points for the relationships that you will enter into and the relationships that you won't enter into it's a hard question because we know that there could be real consequences in our lives for ultimately seeing our common confession with Christ as our strongest and most powerful and most important identity markers, business consequences, social consequences. But it is this reconciled community, this church, for which the scriptures give us a vision here and, our, and a relationship um, demarcation that, that, that binds itself to a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're called to engage this new community that God creates, which is the church. 
Now, if you've had any theological exposure, you may be wondering at this point in which sense I am using the word church because the Bible uses it in a couple of different ways. Am I talking about all peoples at all times in all places who confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? including those in the Old Testament who didn't know about Jesus Christ, but the blood of Jesus retroactively applies to them because of their faith in God? Or am I talking about people who have connect themselves, connected themselves to one tangible uh, body of Christ, like something like this, Christ the King Presbyterian Church? Well, the answer is yes. I'm talking about both of things, these things because these reconciled relationships that the Bible speaks of are indeed universal. Paul's contention in, in, in Ephesians and, and the gospel really means that we have more in common with very poor peasant farmers in rural China who profess the name of Jesus than we do with the guy that we hit golf balls next to at the driving range who does not. It seems crazy, but that's the gospel. And our lives here at this church, if you are a member of Christ the King or you're a member of any other church, our lives here should push us to see that this new community, this new people that Jesus created out of formerly warring communities, is definitive for our lives. In other words, what we have the opportunity to do as members of a local expression, a tangible local expression of God's larger church in the world, like this one, as we have the opportunity to live this reconciliation in a concrete, tangible, and purposeful way by doing it in miniature here, here in this place. And Paul gives us a vision for that in verses 19 through 22. That first of all, the church gives us a new loyalty. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, we're citizens of a lot of things, right? We're citizens of of Houston. We're citizens of Texas. We're citizens of the United States of America. But what Paul is saying is that if we are Christians, if we profess faith in Jesus, our primary citizenship, our primary, what I'm going to talk about in just a second, loyalty is to the kingdom of God. We, the, the, God calls us to be productive and good and faithful citizens of the place that he puts us in the world, but he says that our primary citizenship is in heaven. We're sojourning in this world. We are moving toward heaven, and that is our primary citizenship. So this church gives us a new loyalty. It also gives us a new family. Now, it does seem like we're meddling in some tricky business here, but there it's here in verse 19. You are members of the household of God. So you have a new loyalty and a new family. You know, there's a lot that goes on, and family is important. Family is instituted by God. It's one of the it's one of the relationships that God does institute. But do you realize that the relationship that we are going to carry on into eternity is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that binds us together with all who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in equal intimacy in eternity. That's our vision. In uh, in other words, that's our trajectory. That's the trajectory of 
the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, the family that we enjoy, the family that God has created right now, is going to extend and expand into all of those who profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have difficulty living that reality out right now. Uh, our, our, our cultural confusion, in other words, the fact that we live in a very difficult place that is confusing, we have all kinds of questions circling around us. I think one of the ramifications of that on people in our particularly kind of Western culture who are Christians is a, is a circling of the wagons in, in some respects. In other words, that what we are tempted to do is we are, to, we are tempted to elevate our families on this earth to a place that they do not belong biblically. That's our temptation, to elevate our families on this earth to a place that they do not belong biblically. Our families are very important, but they are not ultimate. The church, the new household of God, is what will endure into eternity. And so our families, which are kind of miniature churches, will seemly, seamlessly fold into this church. I would love for you to carefully consider the relationship of your family to the church. Think about your family with respect to the church. Is church, your life in this church, your commitment to this church or any other church, is it really an option for you when you don't have anything better going on for your family? How much room do you and your family carve out for the life of the church? Where does it fit in to uh, the lifeblood of your family? Is it integral or is it optional? It's a hard question. Paul doesn't give a lot of specifics here, so I'm not going to give a lot of specific directives here. But he does define the church as the family of God. And thus, I think all of us may need to reconsider our relationships in our own family with respect to how they fit into the life of the church. So the church gives us a new loyalty, a new family, and finally a new structure. The last image Paul gives us is in verse 21. A new structure built on the foundation of God's word with Jesus as the cornerstone growing into the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the temple of God represented the presence of God with his people. So what Paul is saying is now the church is that. That's what the church is. The honor of the presence of God in the world resides not in a building, but in a people. In a people. What this means is that wherever we are as a gathered people, as a church, and wherever you are as an individual follower of Jesus, God is there too. You are carrying him and the message and the reconciling message of the gospel into the world. This is God's appointed means of expanding his kingdom through his people. Where you are, the reconciling reconciling message of God is through Jesus as well. You know something? I love this building. 
It is God's gift to us. There are a lot of people in this room that sacrifice greatly to bring this place about. I am so glad. I really am genuinely happy that the Lord has provided us 17 acres of land on which to dwell because I believe that buildings and land and use is redemptive and does represent God's purposes in the world. So it's not a trivial thing whatsoever. But here's the fact. This building is not the church. No building is the church. It is a building that houses the church because do you know who the church is? You are. You are God's people. It is therefore for both a symbol of God's presence in Houston and an instrument through which his presence spreads in our city. That's what makes being a part of the church exciting. That's what makes it important. And that's what should make it a place of vitality and of ultimates in our lives. Because when we come in, it is a place to come in, to be reminded of what is true, to be reminded of the reconciliation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to circle the wagons, not to pull the, the drawbridges up, not to build the moat around us, but be encouraged to be sent back out into the world to carry that message of reconciliation out with us wherever it is that we go. To offer a new community to those who don't experience it because they are still alienated from God and they are still alienated from others. You know, it's kind of been a tough week, a tough couple of weeks to be a Texan. Because first the family that started and owned Schlitterbahn in New Braunfels and Galveston sold it. And then real tragedy struck when a private equity firm in Chicago bought Whataburger, of all things. And then finally, to a, a lesser known but equally important news, it was announced on the far corner of some page of some paper that there is now a, Guinness, a new Guinness World Record holder for the longest horn span of a Texas Longhorn steer, and that Longhorn resides in Alabama, of all places. It's been hard. It's been a hard couple of weeks. But it was that Whataburger sale, I think, that kind of hit the, the most nerves. Right? Even J.J. Watt got into the act, going on Twitter, inviting every true Texan to join with him to buy it back. You know why? Because we live in Texas. And you know what, you know what characterizes people who live in Texas? Pride. The good, the good kind-ish, the good-ish kind. Pride. L- loyalty. You know, Texans are known for both of those things. But it did get me to thinking, what would our community look like? What would our city look like if we at Christ the King truly leaned into our call as the reconciling, the reconciled and reconciling community of the church as much as we do for those other things that hold our passion and hold our loyalty. To show forth the power of the gospel through our reconciled relationships to God and to one another. To represent Christ to the world by refusing to shelter in place, but rather to go out 
to engage our city and its people and to bring the good news of the gospel with us wherever we go. That is the glorious call that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to show forth God's reconciling power in a miniature, tangible way through our life together as followers of Jesus. What place does that hold in your life? What place does that hold in my life? What place does that hold in our life? That I believe, those are, I believe, our, our, our questions worth contemplating as we walk through the future as this community, this community called Christ the King. Let me pray for us now. Father, we do thank you for the reconciliation that you hold out for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us embrace it, Father. Even those who are here now who have never come to you by faith, Lord Jesus, spark and prompt their hearts to bow the knees of their hearts to you, to experience the reconciling power of the gospel, first to you and then to others through gospel power. And help us to passionately display that in our life together here at Christ the King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.